Superchargers, headlights, and more. With over 122 million parts, eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Stay on your A-game with all the parts you need at the prices you want. It's easy to bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. See ebaymotors.com. Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. Eric, what's going on, man? How are you? Oh, I'm doing great. We had uh, friends and family in for the 4th of July. We're packing up, getting ready to move to Sanford, Connecticut. Big change here. Big adventure coming our way, and looking forward to doing this show. Eric, uh, we're T-minus how many days now before you pack up the fam and move to Beverly? Oh, we are probably less than four or five days away. Depends how the packing goes. You know, we're not, honest to gosh, <laughs> literally taking little more than the clothes on our backs. We're going to pack up some wardrobe and the things we basically, you know, absolutely need. And we're just starting over. I feel like I'm 21 years old again. I'm not exaggerating. We're literally going to start from the ground up. It's kind of exciting at this stage of my life to have such a, a great opportunity, but also to be, you know, just leaving everything behind and, and going for broke. It's, it's, it's exhilarating. Dude, you should look into, uh, putting Casa de Bischoff on like VRBO or Airbnb or something. I think wrestling fans would dig doing that. Your boy DDP is doing that with the old accountability crib. Yeah, I don't know. That ain't happening. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, what is happening is we're going to go back and do something we've never done before. We're going to watch an episode of raw that was head to head with nitro when you were commandeering the ship on the other station. So what we want you to do right now is fire up your WWE network and we're going to do a watch along with Eric and get his take on raw number 267. It went down on July 6th, 1998. And we just did this with uh, Bruce Pritchard on something to wrestle where we watched the nitro that was head to head and. Most people remember that date is the date that Goldberg beat Hulk Hogan in the Georgia dome. Uh, probably no, not probably definitely the most watched match in cable professional wrestling history. Meanwhile, this raw, not so much. It was taped uh, a week prior in, um, state college PA. It's an okay show, but it's not nearly what you guys were presenting. So here's an opportunity for you to take a victory lap today, Eric. No, no, but no, before we hit. Before we hit play here and start this, I just want to take a moment to frame this and how much fun what you and I are doing is right now because it is amazing. But how bizarre this is, you know, and here we are in 2019 going over a show from 21 years ago, almost to the day, a couple of days away, and at this time, I'm running WCW. We're in a just a head-to-head battle brawl, you know, sports entertainment, professional wrestling version of nuclear war. And now, 21 years later, I'm re- reporting directly to Vince McMahon and overseeing one of his most important shows. How bizarre is life, brother? Dude, it's it's wild. It's it's especially wild when you consider how quickly it came together. You know, you and I have joked about off air, boy, who would have predicted this two years ago? And you were like, who would have predicted this like three months ago or whatever? I mean, this is such a, 
a quick change of life for you and your family. And, and we, the wrestling fans who've enjoyed sort of chronicling your success in WCW for the last year and a half are, are along for the ride and we're pulling for you, man. We're excited that you're there. And I know that you got to be a little nervous. Anything else you're trying to do and prep for, uh, being around Vince every single day, probably practicing, not sneezing and things like that. <laughs> no, but in, kidding aside, I mean, I'm serious about this. I'm actually looking at this, you know, almost like a, a, a professional athlete would look at a championship event, you know, whatever it is, whether you're running a marathon or playing in the NFL or getting ready for the Super Bowl, or if you're a boxer or an MMA fighter, I'm literally preparing myself physically. You know, I'm, I'm watching what I'm eating. Cause I know this is, this is going to be, it's an endurance test. You know, it's 23, seven. It's I'm going to have to be at the top of my game. Let's put it that way, physically, mentally, in every possible way. So I'm, I, I'm, I'm definitely attacking this opportunity. Uh, probably like, you know, a professional athlete might attack, you know, their, their sport. But I do want to say, you know, I, and I, I, you know, I don't want anybody to read into what I'm about to say and don't try to connect dots that don't exist. I'm not saying that, you know, my perfect hair and my perfect teeth had anything to do with getting <laughs> with getting with getting this job. I but I'm also not gonna say it had any adverse effect on Did, my ability to get this job. So just take that for whatever it's worth. Yeah, it didn't hurt. Um it did not hurt. Well, let's get to it, man. Fire up your WWE network. Uh, you, if you're watching on your computer at home, you're going to go to in ring and then you're going to go to raw replays and then you're going to find 1998. You're going to scroll down until you see raw number 267, July 6th, 1998. Eric's going to give us a countdown and then we'll press play. Eric, what will the countdown sound like when you give it? Three, two, one, go. So, so that's what we're going to do. Uh, and, and we're going to do Hopefully you've got your sound down. Uh, so you'll just hear Eric and I, you'll just hit mute without further ado, Eric, let's get our countdown here going for raw number 267, July 6th, 1998. All right. Get your thumbs ready in three, two, one, go. What do you think of this, uh, this open, you know, I kind of like it, it, you know, it reflects, I think, the dawn of the digital age. It's got a very, you know, high-tech digital feel that was emerging at the time. So I, I kind of like it. So here we're seeing a, a replay of what happened the day after King of the Ring 1998. Of course, we know that Stone Cold Steve Austin would lose his world title to Kane in a first blood match, which is pretty remarkable. Uh, that there was a first blood match with a guy completely covered and under a mask. And here comes stone cold to confront everybody. He was working with staff infection there in his elbow. Uh, that episode of raw that we're seeing a recap for here would be headlined, of course, with a rematch for the world title. Stone cold would win the belt back. And the result is just a disaster for nitro ratings. Uh, raw is going to destroy nitro. And when that rating comes down on a Tuesday, according to the rumor and innuendo, uh, you guys are sent into a little bit of a panic and that's when you decide, Hey, we're not just going to have Goldberg and Hulk Hogan as a dark match for the live crowd, which was the original plan for the Georgia dome. Instead, it's going to be on TV and it's very, no, that's a, but that's not true. That's not true. I, I, and, and I don't mean to interrupt you, Cutter. Maybe you were going to ask me, um, to respond to that, but there is, 
that is there's nothing more antithetical to the truth than the statement that w- was reported there. That is not true. It was never report it was never a conversation about having the end as a dark match. Ever. But I'm sorry. Uh, Hulk Hogan says in his book that it was, so that's where I got my news, not the newsletter. Uh, but Hulk Hogan said it was the planned dark match and it had been announced all along. And you called him with uh, six of your best friends, which is his code for saying you're drinking a six pack all by yourself and saying, Hey, how can I pull the nose up? And he takes credit saying, put it on TV. No, uh, well, I mean, I'll, let's just make it clear as we set this up. Cause that's important. It was Hulk Hogan. I was driving him. I was, and I think we've talked about this before. Yeah. I was literally, I was in Marina del Rey. I, I had some business in Los Angeles. I had little, I was on highway 60 in Marina del Rey and Hulk Hogan called me and he goes, Hey, do you have a minute to talk? I said, sure. I'm going to get through this quick. I pu- literally pulled off on the side of the road by Jerry's deli and pulled off on the side of the road. I was driving a convertible at the time, which is why I pulled off on the side of the road. So I, I could actually hear him on my cell phone. And he said, I've got an idea. Let's let's do this. And I, I said, are you sure this is what you want to do? Because I'm absolutely sure. And that's what set it in motion. I had so I you know, Hulk Hogan is one of my best friends. I love him like a brother, but that story is not accurate. Anyway, so the rating comes down and you guys got absolutely smashed and. Um, you, this had nothing to do with it. Like the, the, the raw that we just saw a recap of and you getting trounced in the ratings, putting Goldberg and Hulk Hogan on TV in the main event had nothing to do as a, as a response to the poor rating. It may have had, it may have been the, the catalyst for Hulk to pick up the phone and call me and say, Hey brother, I got an idea. I can't, and I can't speak to what was going through his mind and how he was reacting to things before he picked up the phone. But I, I can, I, I, you know, I swear I had. It it wasn't a reaction from my point. It wasn't my idea. It was his idea. He should have been taking credit for this in his book. Oh, no, he you was. Know, he, he, he was saying it was his idea, but he, he said that you called him and asked for, hey, what would, what should we do? Uh, I, I mean, it's a minor difference that, you know, he called you versus you called him. Either way, he takes credit for the suggestion. But he also insinuates that that was the plan all along. It was just supposed to happen in front of the local house show, not actually on TV. But the, the show we're talking about, by the way, the week prior to this, one day after the uh, King of the Ring, uh, Raw would get a 5.36. Nitro got a 4.05. It set a new record when you combined them. 9.23. Uh, Meltzer would say that's 6,769,000 total homes. And uh, I guess we should mention that Bruce agrees with you and says uh, there weren't really that many people watching wrestling. Some of those people were counted twice. They're just going back and forth. Yeah, a lot of duplication at that time, just because of the inaccurate, you know, nature of Nielsen and the way it's tracked. So here you go. This is a taped show. This was taped one day after that live raw that thumped Nitro. Uh, back in this era, Raw was not live every single week. They would do a live show on Monday, go to a new town on Tuesday, while they still had all the production and staff and crew there. And tape another show. And that's what's happening here. So this is going to run unopposed on a Tuesday, but it won't air until the following Monday. And with the benefit of knowing what was being programmed on the show, uh, you guys pulled out all the stops for Hogan Goldberg. Uh, what do you make of, uh, the way we're starting here? Undertaker's mid ring and Michael Cole is trying to track down stone cold, Steve Austin backstage. Here's what I like about this scene. And this is really simple stuff. It's so simple. It's almost not worth mentioning. 
except for when you compare it to the way things are done today, this looked like a very realistic scene. Yes. You got Michael Cole hitting a couple doors. There's no Steve Austin. There's no Steve Austin. That's probably how it would really go, or at least as real as it could possibly be presented, as opposed to, you know, all of a sudden finding Steve right away and, and, you know, having that kind of performance happen almost spontaneously. Having him, having Cole looking for Steve made that feel very believable to me. No, I would agree. And here he comes. What a huge reaction. Of course, when we watched Nitro with Bruce, Bruce couldn't help but say, you know, oh, they were just ripping off Stone Cold with Goldberg. You know, bald-headed guy, goatee, black trunks, black boots. They just, you know, wanted to copy what we were doing. So they made their own Steve Austin with Goldberg. Your response? You know, I mean, I can understand why, you know, fans and Bruce would feel that way. And, you know, some of that is very obvious. But I can also say Bill Goldberg looked the way Bill Goldberg looked the first day I talked to him before he even joined WCW. Right. Uh, now, Now, maybe Bill Goldberg had a Steve Austin fetish. And, you know, was trying to, you know, shape and frame himself to walk around Atlanta looking like Bill Goldberg. But every image I've ever seen of Bill Goldberg, even when he was playing in the NFL, he kind of looked the same way. So I think a lot of that is inherent, just it, just coincidental, I should say. Now, the black boots and the black tights, that's also, you know, kind of an obvious thing. And I'm not going to deny that obvious. <laughs> they were very, very similar, if not identical. But from my perspective, at least, there was nobody sat around a room and said, "Okay, how can we make you know Bill Goldberg, who already looks like Steve Austin, and that, you know that, that was God's work, not mine. How do, how can we make him look even more like Steve Austin? That didn't happen. Um, Bill showed up wearing black boots and black tights. I mean, that's how he walked through the curtain the first time on his own in a dark match. It, it wasn't by design. No, Nobody sat in a room and, and created that look for him. What do you think of the, uh, Mr. McMahon character, you know, at its height, of course, we know that, uh, 83 weeks is the streak, the number of weeks that nitro would thump raw head to head in the ratings. And the thing that finally knocks it off the throne is a main event with Mr. McMahon and stone cold, Steve Austin in April. So here we are in July. This Mr. McMahon character has really been rolling since the Montreal screw job in November. When did you realize, God damn, he's the best heel on TV or did you ever think that? No, I did think that obviously it started with the Tyson Austin, you know, feud. It, it started with that Mr. McMahon character. And the reason I think this works, I've said this before a million times in a million different interviews, when a character resonates, whether it's Ric Flair, Stone Cold Steve Austin, Hulk Hogan, whomever it is. You know, if you can find that, if you're a character and you can find a way to, to turn up the volume on the real you, you know, those characteristics in your personality that make you unique and you find a way to turn up the volume on certain elements of those characters, all of a sudden that character becomes way more believable. The Mr. McMahon character works so well because it is very much a large part of who Vince McMahon is deep down inside. The Eric Bischoff character worked. The easy E, sleazy E, whatever you want to call it, character worked because a good portion of that character w- was really me. I, 
I was a, you know, egotistical. I wanted to win. I, I would do anything to win, as would Vince. Stone Cold Steve Austin found himself in ECW, you know, because of what he went through in, in WCW, in his own words, not my opinion. And he found that character. And eventually, it didn't start out in you know in WWE when he got there, but he eventually went back to it. And Steve found himself by just being himself with the volume turned up. So I think that's why it's working so well here. So as a heads up, what's happening here, the undertaker is super pissed. Uh, so he's stomping out. He wants a title shot against stone cold, Steve Austin tonight. Austin comes out to answer that call, but before he can even speak, McMahon interrupts him and reminds him that, Hey, I decide who gets title shots around here. And he wants to see these guys tear each other apart at the next pay-per-view fully loaded, but they won't be facing each other. Uh, they will face, um, Kane and mankind in a tag match. And the undertaker is, uh, obviously not happy with that news. McMahon also announces that a new number one contender for Austin's title will be named tonight. And, uh, we know that that's going to wind up. Look at that middle finger, uh, with undertaker and mankind to the main event. What do you think about the Mr. McMahon character flipping the bird and they're digitizing it? Uh, is this exactly what you're selling against in, in the more corporate meetings of sort of the brand identity and the differences between WCW and the WWF? Well, it certainly was one of the things that was leading up to the conversation I had in July of 1998 with Joe Yuva and the the, the infamous um, here's what here's how you're gonna here's how you're gonna produce Nitro Kid um, meeting is. Vince McMahon, the WWE was turning really turning up the volume on the attitude area era and do you know the flipping people off on camera drinking beer at ringside may young giving birth all the crazy things that were happening during that period of time in uh wwe were putting a lot of pressure on us turner corporate decided that you know our best move rather than try to meet and exceed that type of presentation was to go the other direction and appeal to kids and be the family friendly you know, advertiser safe version of of sports entertainment, professional wrestling. It was a fatal mistake at a critical time, but it was you know they forced us into a corner, and I think they came out on top largely because of it. Took a lot of guts. I can't believe we're doing this brawl for all three one minute rounds, and uh, we're not working. We're shooting, and we've got a real referee in here, and we've got. Uh, boxing pads and, 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 and this is, there's a lot going on here to say the least. Brockus, by the way, had been hyped up on raw. They started airing those vignettes in July of 97. So it took him a fucking year to get to the actual show. And he does it here because they hope Savio Vega can knock his ass clean out. Savio Vega, of course, uh, a very tenured, well-respected wrestler. And I think he's, uh, going to pop up again here pretty soon for major league wrestling in 2019 of all places you would see him. He's back, baby. And, uh, yeah, brawl for all here is the first in-ring action on the show. I gotta hear your opinion about this. And and I know sometimes when, when we say stuff on the podcast, people think it's all tongue in cheek. And a lot of that is because Bruce Pritchard yells every chance he gets. He's a three-time karate black belt hall of famer, but you were a legitimate karate competitor who had televised matches on ESPN you traveled the circuit and did it. You didn't just write a check like Bruce three times and then ta-da, here's your plaque. You actually competed. So you know a thing or two about a thing or two when it comes to combat sports. When you see uh, they're doing what on Raw? What's your reaction? 
I mean, I, I recognize it for what it was, which is, you know, a gimmick. You know, it's something different, something unique. I mean, and, you know, watch this footage. These guys are actually, I mean, they're, they're throwing bombs. They're throwing punches. But it's clear neither one of them know what they're doing. And what what's clear to me watching this is they're both gassed already. You know, if you're not used to, conditioned to, you know, if, I mean, Savio Vega's got a pretty good right hook there. Yeah, he does. Um, but if you're not conditioned for that type of thing, uh, and I would say Brockus looks like he's spent a lot of time in the gym and no time doing cardio. That leg dive right there was a perfect example of that. And the other thing that occurs to me here watching this is why the hell would you leg dive somebody when you've got boxing gloves on? What are you going to do when you get them on the ground? Try to you know put them into a guillotine? You know, I mean, what, what are you going to do once you get there? Um, but but I'm I'm looking at these two guys right now, and they're probably both wishing they didn't take this match. <laughs> well, yeah, it looks like a it looks like a tough man contest, and and Vega actually looks pretty good here. I'm I'm not criticizing either one of them. Those look to me like 16 ounce gloves, which will tire even a conditioned boxer. They'll tire you out pretty quick. It's not easy. Yes, yeah, so you're talking about an extra pound on the end of your fist, and you've got to swing that pound around and. Uh, you know, one of the things that always sort of poked holes in the logic of this concept to me is why are we as wrestling fans supposed to believe that, you know, these guys, when they punch with gloves, they're fucking each other up. But when they've just got bare knuckles out there and they just shake it off and do 19 hurricane runners behind it. I mean, that's a little suspect, huh? Yeah, yeah, it is. It kind of, it, it distorts, uh, psychology quite a bit. Brock is, is so gassed right now. He's wishing he would get knocked out. Brockus feels like, um, a guy who, who could have just popped up in WCW. And I'm not saying that to be funny, but you guys had guys like Max muscle who were just recently lost. Uh, we'll circle back to him so you can talk about him if you have anything, but Max muscle and Max Payne And there were so many muscled up dudes who just popped up, you know, the two dudes from high voltage and things like that. Brockus feels like if he was just indescript WCW Saturday night wrestler, number 72, uh, that that would have fit right in. Did you guys ever have a conversation with him of any sort that you recall? No, none whatsoever. So, uh, we just, uh, as I mentioned, we just recently discovered that I think on June 27th, uh, we lost a WCW alumni. Uh, and he of course was the second for diamond Dallas page for a long time. Um, any memories of him? Not, nothing that really stands out, to be honest. I, I hate to say that, but sometimes that was just the case. You know, when you've got 100 guys on the roster and you're running 100 miles an hour, it's just sometimes you don't get to know people as well as you wish you did, and that's the case there. Gone way too soon, born in 63, so he was not an old man by any stretch. Um, Savio Vega here, uh, probably past uh, the prime of his WWF career. It certainly feels like he's on the downswing. Uh, I think most people remember him with his feud with, um, Justin Hawk, Bradshaw and stone cold, Steve Austin and, uh, gold dust, all those guys really give a tip of the cap to him as helping, you know, sort of move them along and teach them a lot about the business. Uh, but now that the, the gang warfare and the Bariquas have sort of been scaled down, he's just, uh, probably looking for an opportunity to get some TV time and show off what he can do. Brackus, meanwhile, as we said, I've been hyped for a long time, but it does feel like an idea that looked good on paper, but maybe not the best in execution. Brockus, of course, he's going to lose and he's out of here. Savio moves on in the tournament. What'd you think of the first brawl for all match here on Monday night raw? 
Uh, I think it looked really, I think it took Raw down a notch. Um, look, there's nothing worse than bad comedy, you know, a bad singer or bad boxing. <laughs> and there's, although, I, you know, Savio showed me more than I thought he would here. Um, but it's still, you know, compared to what people are used to seeing on television, it's, it's bad boxing. And it looked horrible. I think it took the show down. Somebody who uh, I think a lot of people assume when you hear, oh, Brawl for All, real mixed martial arts, Ken Shamrock's going to be in that. Ken Shamrock passed on that opportunity. Surprise, surprise. Uh, and he's coming out looking like a million bucks here. And I've always quizzed Bruce on, man, why, can't, why didn't you guys like make a real run for him? Maybe him and Steve on top for the world title. I mean, he had a lot of momentum. Fans were into it. He was very believable. And when I asked that same thing of JR, JR was pretty candid in saying, you know, he wasn't trustworthy. We, we didn't trust that he would show up. He wasn't reliable. I mean, he would be late to shows or he would miss shows and he was having fun being on the road. But when it came time to handle your business, we didn't know that he would always be there. Someone who always felt like they were in WCW, but surprise, surprise, he's here in the WWF Tennessee Lee, the, the former Colonel Robert Parker. Uh, when there's no more Colonel Robert Parker on WCW, is it a sad day? No, I think it ran its course. And don't get me wrong, I I enjoyed working, you know, with Parker. He was a professional's professional. He, I couldn't have been easier to work with or more enjoyable to work with. But sometimes a character just runs a course. It's it's course, and there's nowhere left to go with it. And it's just time, you know. You, you, nothing's forever in in entertainment, whether it's music, you know, movies or professional wrestling well i think jeff jarrett would tend to disagree some things are forever it feels like this motherfucker will not go away uh he had a couple of runs here in the wwf a couple of runs in wcw uh, all over tna and now he's back in the wwe nobody has a story like jeff jarrett do they no and you got to give him credit you know sometimes endurance and the ability to survive is probably one of the greatest strengths you know a human being can have and, and you got to hand it to Jeff Jarrett. You know, he survived it all. I have a, uh, of course we've, we've joked about Jeff a lot here on the show. You, you've said that he has the worst wrestling gear in the history of wrestling. Undoubtedly. There's no, look at this. There's no question about it. It just looks, he looks like a parody of a Chippendales dancer. He was a fast forward button for me at the time. And it's weird because when I finally met him, I got it. Like all these years I watched on TV, I didn't get it. And then you meet him. He's a charming motherfucker. Like you can't help, but like Jeff Jarrett. But when I was watching at home, it was like, Oh God, change the channel. What else is there? You know what I discovered in working with Jeff and, you know, Jeff and I have always had a, at best, a awkward relationship. Strained would probably be a better description and not because I didn't like him or, or whatever. I, I just think timing, you know, you, you put two people with certain chemistry, uh, in a certain situations and they're just probably not going to vibe all that well. Right. So I, I had never considered myself a big Jeff Jarrett fan and he probably never considered himself a big Eric Bischoff fan, but we, we, you know, we, we tolerated each other in different situations and at towards my end of the run in, in TNA and Jeff had his own issues with TNA that had nothing to do with me. They existed before I got there. They existed after I got there, while I was there, and so forth. But there was a, a, a window of time there when I was at TNA when I was actually working closely with Jeff. And Jeff was a producer. And I was more or less, uh, probably by default more than anything, 
in, in charge of creative. And one of the things that I learned about Jeff at that point, because I never worked with him that way before, is what an amazing talent he has for being a producer. And and you can, you know, if you're outside of the wrestling business and you, you know, in your own mind, you put people on different hierarchies in terms of where they are in creative or whether a producer or whatever, you know, a producer is, I think, one of the most important aspects of the job because it's up to that producer to really communicate creative that the creative team comes up with, communicate that story to the talent so that the the, the talent can tell that story and maintain the narrative of that story within the body and the context of a physical wrestling match. And it's not that it sounds like it might be easy to do, but it's really, really difficult. And it takes an extreme, extremely unique talent to be able to communicate that to especially younger talent who might not have the level of experience and psychology that a veteran like, you know, a Jeff Jarrett or a Dean Malenko, you know, Arn Anderson, those types of experienced veterans have. And I really saw firsthand just how smart and experienced Jeff was when it came to psychology, not only the ability for him to do it himself, but the ability to teach it and communicate it. And therein lies the art, you know, of being a great producer. It's one thing to be able to do it yourself, but to be able to share it and teach it, you know, to somebody who's not as experienced is the real talent. And Jeff has an abundance of it. When you see this match here with Jeff Jarrett and Tennessee Lee, I mean, this feels like a little bit warmed up WCW here. Does it not? It has that tone. There's no doubt about it. You know, especially with Tennessee Lee, uh, he, he had been pretty prominent in WCW for a long time and a lot of different high profile angles. So it's, it's hard not to, uh, to, to get a sense of familiarity in that respect. Let's talk about Ken Shamrock Shamrock. As we mentioned, you know, I, I've always wondered, Hey, why didn't he get more of a push? JR explained that on grill and JR, but was there ever a serious conversation with him in WCW? Cause we know tank Abbott will come over. My goodness. Here comes viscera. Uh, what about Shamrock and WCW ever have a combo? I never did. You know, in fact, the first time I've ever talked to Ken Shamrock was at Starcast wow. uh, a couple months ago. I had never had, never had a conversation. I actually had to come up and introduce myself because I haven't been on television so long. I'm sure I look a lot different than he remembers. So I, I actually came up and uh, it actually was in your office, you know, the, the main meeting room that you had there at, the, at uh, Caesars. And I went up and introduced myself to him. I, I think he recognized me pretty quickly or, or he did a good job faking it. But, uh, yeah, that was the first time I had ever talked to him was just, you know, a month or two ago. Dude, that dude still looks like a million dollars, doesn't he? Oh my gosh. That's what I said to him. So how do you, how do you do it, man? I mean, granted you can, you know, you can partake in all the extracurricular activity you think you can handle, but still, you know, father time gets a hold of you and he, he looks, in my opinion, he looks as good or better than he ever has. Yeah. I mean, the only way you can tell he's a little older is, is through the face. You know, you, you can say, oh, well, there's a couple more wrinkles than there used to be, but the, he looks like he's in fighting shape right now. He's ready to throw. Oh man. I wouldn't tangle with him. He's actually, I think he, he looks better now. Cause he's, he's leaner. Yeah. You know, I think that you watch a lot of these guys, you know, Brackus, we saw just a little while ago, he was so jacked up. You know, you could, he, he was gasped on his way to the ring. Right. He was he, he was ready to give up that fight before he got there, because you just 
you, your body's not meant to carry all that muscle and be physically active. It's great if you're a bodybuilder, but if you're a fighter, it's just too much weight, too much muscle, and you don't eat, you get so fatigued you don't even you're not even capable of using it. But you know, Ken looks leaner and meaner now than he did here. So Michael Cole is trying to give some sympathies to Ken Shamrock and Shamrock wants Mabel tonight somehow, some way. Uh, and up next, uh, I think this is going to be something you'll enjoy. I could be wrong. Your favorite, the man they call Vader. Isn't it weird that I just said this felt like warmed up WCW and the next guy out is Vader. I know it's really interesting. It's so fascinating looking back and from, from the point of view that we have now in 2019 and looking back at all of this and all the different things that took place and happened during this period of time. And, you know, it's just fascinating to me. It really is. I mean, it goes to show you, you know, number one, don't burn any bridges because no even, even though you think you'll never have to cross that bridge again, chances are you will, or you might want to. And boy, I'm living proof of that. <laughs> <laughs> You're damn right. You are. What's funny though, is I think sometimes the narrative, uh, and that's what we spend a lot of time talking about here on the show. Here comes Bradshaw, the former, uh, new blackjack Bradshaw. He's not quite yet an acolyte, but it won't be much longer. He's still got his, uh, his similar blackjack look. And you see last week, man, he really messed up uh, a lot of plans for a lot of people here in brawl for all. Oof. Man, these... Boy, that's, that's a, that's a bad bar fight right there. That's a bad, that's a bar fight. I would never want to have to end up in. Oh, no. Henry O. Godwin and, and John Bradshaw Layfield are two giant men that maybe that doesn't translate on TV, but when you meet Bradshaw in real life, you're reminded, oh, he's a very large human being. Uh, even now that he's slimmed down, he's still what? Probably six, 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 seven. Easy, easy. Uh, so anyway, though, the narrative, a lot of times is that, uh, WCW didn't know what to do with the talent they had, and they had to go to the WWF to be stars. Uh, that's not exactly the case for Vader. Vader had a much more dominant and impressive run in WCW. I felt like, uh, after the first couple of months here in the WWF, it was pretty much all downhill for Vader and he never really recovered. And I wonder as far as like legacy is concerned, you know, what his legacy might've been had he never come to the WWF, had he left. Uh, WCW and then, you know, done some independence, done some Japanese wrestling, whatever, but just stayed away from here. I do think it probably tarnished his legacy a little bit. Would you agree with that? Uh, I guess objectively, you know, you could take that position and probably be right. I, I look, the independent scene really wasn't active or viable at the time. Uh, we're talking about here, but Japan certainly was. And I think his legacy would have been much stronger had he just gone directly and, and lived out the rest of his career in Japan as opposed to WWE. Not because the WWE wasn't capable of getting over, but anybody that transitioned from WCW to WWE will probably tell you, if they're being honest with you, that it's just a different style. It's a different system. The expectations are completely different. And some people can adjust to it very quickly. Some people have a very difficult time. And I think Vader had a very difficult time, probably because of his size and his style. Um, but Vader had a very difficult time living up to the expectations of WWE. Uh, so, yeah, it, 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 he'd have been better off just making the move to Japan and staying there because they loved him over there. 
about four hall of famers in there right now, for sure. Vader Kane, mankind and uh, Layfield. It's fun to go back and look at this because you sort of forget how loaded the roster was. It really was. And these are all names right now, obviously Vader no longer with us, but these are all names right now that would, you know, would, would be a top headliner at Starcast or any WWE access event or, or any other, you know, independent type of event anywhere in the world right now today. And we've got a mayor. Hey, and thanks for the cheap plug. Uh, the former mankind, Mr. Mick Foley will indeed be at Starcast in Chicago. So looking forward to having him and. I think we've got an announcement coming out later this week about that appearance. So that should be fun. Wow. I'm excited. I'm clairvoyant. I know. I think people probably assume that I like slid you a note right there, but you just gave me a no. plug. I didn't even know. <laughs> I didn't even know, but it's true. And it's, it's exciting. And I, by the way, I think Mick Foley's one of the coolest dudes in the industry right now. He does so much for me. And he, I swear he must live on the road still. Every time I hear something from him or about him, he's doing an event somewhere in the world. He just. And probably loved, doing it for charity. He, yeah, he does a lot of them for charity and for causes. He, he loves people. He loves the opportunity to use the, the, the fame, I guess, that, that you know, he's built up and the relationship he's built up with wrestling fans over the years. You know, for good causes, he's, I just think he's one of the best people in the industry. So, uh, the DOA driving the bikes down to the ring. And of course, last week we saw Paul Ellering, unbelievably turn his back on the Legion of doom and the road warriors who he'd been paired with for more than a decade. Uh, and he's going to now side with skull and eight ball. You ever have any conversations with Paul Ellering? Never met him once. It's like. You know, he was obviously a, a big fixture in the AWA along with the Road Warriors, but that was before I got there, and we just never crossed paths. But I was, I was always right behind him. <laughs> it, it seems. So, how about uh, the Headbangers coming out and pouring wax on themselves? Uh, did you ever watch any Headbangers matches? No, and I can. I, I hate to be this way, but I'm, you know, glad I didn't waste a lot of time. Yeah, no, I understand. It's not my, not my thing. And again, I've, I'll keep saying this until I no longer speak about this kind of thing. I get that other people dig it. it it's kind of like the flock, you know, I get that other people dig it and I, and I wholeheartedly support their ability and, and the right to enjoy this type of presentation. It, just not for me. Yeah. I, I feel like you're just sort of anti all things grunge for lack of a better word. Fair to say. Well, I mean, from a storyteller's point of view, what do we have here? We got four guys that essentially look the same. If you don't know them really, really well, it would be hard to tell them apart. You know, there's nothing about them that makes them unique from each other, which again, just a basic fundamental storytelling one-on-one. Eh, I'm not interested. Right. If you don't give me a reason to care about one person or another, or in this case, one team or another, if you can't make me want to feel one way or the other about somebody, then I don't care about any of them. It's just, it's just me. It's just my quirk. 
Well, I like the headbangers and I know, you know, you said it wasn't really for you, but I've always wondered if this gimmick sort of held these guys back. I mean, and, and just based on your reaction, the answer is yes. Uh, because yeah, their, their work is great. I mean, look at them. They're nothing wrong with their work. I just think the gimmick is, was just overdone. And in this case, yeah, yeah, care less. What about, uh, raw? Did you look at from a production standpoint and you thought, man, I wish we could get some of that on nitro. And I'm not saying that to be funny, but I mean, graphics, music, lighting, commentary. Uh, is there something about this raw broadcast from 1998 that back when you were watching it, then not now you could be a little envious of and say, man, I wish our lighting was like that. Or I wish we had whatever. All of the above, you know, from the very beginning, you know, when nitro landed on my lap and my list of things to get done, I knew immediately that the, the only way I could, as Ted Turner said to me, how do we become, you know, competitive with the WWE, you know, in my mind, there was about 15 different answers to that question, but right at the very top of that list, I, although I didn't say it to Ted, was, you know, we have to bring our production values up. And I mean, that's first and foremost. All I kept hearing about when I, when I, and I don't mean to sound like I, I was sick of hearing about it, but when I first hired Gene Okerlund, you know, because Gene Okerlund was very close to Kevin Dunn up until the day he died and Gene died and all Gene would talk, ever talk about was the production values, production values, production values. Because Gene knew that if we were ever going to raise the profile of anything WCW, we had a million miles to cover when it came to production values because ours was horseshit. And, you know, the WWFs, WWEs at the time was second to none. So I looked at every aspect of their production, from their lighting to their, you know, their commentary to their graphics, you know, their timing. I looked at all of it, and it was all superior to ours. And even here, you know, one of the things I like about look at the way that crowd is lit. You know, number one, you have a big crowd. Why not take advantage of it? Because a crowd really enhances the viewer at home's perception of what it is they're watching. It makes it look valuable. It it adds credibility to the show when you've got fifteen or eighteen or ten or twelve thousand people filling an arena reacting to what's going on. It makes it feel like it had not makes it feel like it had it has more energy. The talent has more energy. The talent in the ring is responding to the crowd. It just feels better all the way around. And that was one thing WWE always had that we had to really work hard for. And and I I looked at these production values and did everything I could to emulate them. Did I floor you with that commentary? A little bit. A little bit. Just, you know, because the thing that is sort of lost on a lot of people, I think, because you hear that production comment a lot. Turner's a TV company. Like that should be the one thing that is a slam dunk, but it's not. No, but, but, but yeah, you know, this is again, when you're not in the industry. Yeah. Turner was a television production company that produced live sports. Live sports is a lot different than live wrestling. You know, live wrestling is live theater, live sports. You're, you're, you're not, you're not producing it. You're covering it. Yes, technically you're you're producing it. I don't mean to take anything away from it, but it is what it is. The lighting inside of a baseball arena or a basketball arena is what it is. Yes, you can enhance it for television. There's some things you can tweak, but it is what it is. 
um, producing wrestling and capturing the drama of a stage performance in a, in a venue and capturing the energy of the crowd is an entirely different thing. Um, it's not the same. It's not as easy. If you're a producer who's used to producing, if you're a cameraman and you're one of the best cameraman in the NBA and you do a great job, you know, covering basketball, I just want to smack D. Lil Brown right now as he's making this entrance. That's the not idea, that, isn't it? Not that I could get away with it, but I, I, I would want to. I'd keep it to myself, but I would really want to. Um, but going back to production, you could be one of the best cameramen in the NFL, one of the best cameramen in the NBA, and then you could get a gig, you know, shooting wrestling, and you, you'd be the weakest link in the chain. You know, it's just different. And until you've done it, you don't understand it. So tell everybody why you want to slap d just that entrance and, you know, hats off to him. I'm, this is an indirect, you know, compliment. You talk, I mean, he got heat the minute he walked out the, through the curtain, you know, that, and, it, and that's important. Look at him. You just want to hate him. That's a character. You know, forget about whether he was good in the ring or bad in the ring or any of that kind of stuff. In terms of did he establish himself as a character you're either going to love or hate the minute you walked out the door or he walked through the curtain if you've never seen him before? Yes, in, in, in multiples of 10, he did. How great is uh, D'Lo rocking the chest protector? <laughs> I, I, I don't get it, but it's working. You know, it works for me. It works for Owen Reigns. I love it. I thought it was great. And he's in there with a, with a legend, uh, Terry Funk, uh, of course. I think most people remember him as being a part of the NWA and WCW more than the WWF. And here he is strutting that ass. Uh, the chest protector bit always really worked for me. I don't know why, but I, think I don't know why either, but I think it's a Jim Ross. Idea. I think it was just cause it was different, you know, something different. And it became, you know, in the nineties, people would talk about, oh, Lex Luger's got that plate in his elbow or whatever. Well, this way he's, uh, got a wink and a nod for a reason to wear a chest protector. So when he does that frog splash, it hurts more and you can't really chop him. Cause he's got the chest protect. It's funny stuff. Of course. I guess so. I guess so. Not slowing funk down. I'll just punch you in the face. How about this too? You don't see this very often anymore. A pile driver. No, no, it's a dangerous move. There's a, there's a good reason we don't see it anymore. It's right up there with, you know, chair shots and some of the other things that we didn't know 20 years ago could be as, as dangerous long-term as they are. But, you know, a pile driver, especially when you're hot and you're slippery and you're in a ring and, you know, one, one wrong move or miscalculation and because all that weight's landing on your neck and the vertebrae in your neck are pretty uh, vulnerable to begin with, um, yeah, it's a highly dangerous maneuver. We didn't really uh, talk about it a ton, but you know we don't usually talk about current stuff. I'm curious to hear what you thought about the controversy about uh, a chair shot in AEW at their uh, their pay per view a couple of weeks ago, Fighter Fest. I guess it was free, but the internet was a flutter over the fact that Cody Rhodes took a chair shot, and of course the company said, "Oh, the chair was gimmicked, you know, safe, safe as safe could be." But the back of the chair still caught Cody on the head. He wound up getting like a dozen staples. But there for a little while, it was brought to the forefront because we haven't seen chair shots to the head in a long, long time, 
Where does Eric Bischoff fall on that in 2019? Uh, I wish it wouldn't have happened. I don't care if it was a gimmick chair or not a gimmick chair. I think it's just opening yourself up to a lot of criticism and, and justifiable criticism that's unnecessary. And I don't think it makes for a better product. I think when you have to rely on that type of um, uh, a move or, or a moment to advance a story, you're probably weak on story. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm not an advocate. I'm, I, 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 I'm an advocate against it. I just think it's too old school. I'm not a big fan of blood. You know, and I'm speaking for myself as a fan, not as a representative of anybody, and I'm not critiquing AEW. God bless them. Do whatever you're going to do. You know, want everybody to be successful. I want all boats to rise with the highest tide possible. But as a fan, um, I just, I've never liked it. I've just, it's never been something that I felt was, Additive to a match. What'd you think of, uh, the Godfather D'Lo pairing? Of course, most people remember them from their nation of domination. Um, here comes the undertaker. Oh, he's not like happy either. Godfather of course had a ton of different characters. You know, he was, uh, pop Shango. He was Kama the fighting machine. He was the good father where he joined the right to censor and here the Godfather, what do you think of the Godfather character? I liked it again. It was a very distinct, very colorful, uh, character that was easy to feel strongly about. So I, I liked it, but, and I never knew Godfather up until a couple years ago when I, I don't know if I was overseas at a comic con or a Russell fest or some event signing autographs, but I happened to be sitting next to him at a table or you know, one table across from each other and got to hang out with him for the day. He's just one of the coolest cats in the world. You know, I was also with Kevin Nash and they, obviously they knew each other very well. So it was easy for me to kind of get, you know, into a conversation with the two of them and, and kind of be part of the afternoon. He had a blast. Just one of the coolest guys in the world. Everybody gets a choke slam, including the Funker. And of course, Undertaker's trying to impress upon Mr. McMahon that he wants his damn title shot. And, uh, yeah, that's going to get us done with hour one here of the show. Uh, and we're going to enter, uh, part two, uh, famously, of course, we've got two shows here, uh, Monday night raw. And then, uh, raw is war. So raw is war or sorry. Raw is war is the first one. And. Warzone is the second one, whatever. Um, this is of course the crossover and out comes Mr. McMahon explain what the crossover means and why it's important in television. Well, you know, when you've got a two hour show and we try to do the same thing at night show, by the way, it's one of the reasons why I changed announcers at the top of the hour to make it feel like there were two different shows, but the crossover was important because you're, you know, your competition on various networks, whether you're, you know, terrestrial networks or other cable outlets, all of their new shows were coming up or the next show was coming up at the top of the hour. So if you, in other words, if you've built your audience from eight to nine o'clock and you've got them and you, you hook them for a main event because you're generally speaking, at least your shows are structured in a way that, you know, you, you grab an audience and ideally that audience builds throughout the hour because the anticipation for the main event builds Everybody knows that the main event is the most important part of the show traditionally. So you, you build it up to that, you know, nine o'clock hour. If it's an eight to nine 
show, you want to hold as much of that audience as you possibly can and drag them into the second hour as opposed to them going, oh, I'm going to see what's on over at the History Channel or I'm going to see what's on over on ABC, whatever. So you you build to that critical moment at, at the at the top of the, the first hour and then you bring out your big guns or every you know creatively whatever you think you have that is the most powerful to help you transition and hold as much of that audience so you're not starting over from scratch and you've got an even bigger audience to build upon so your entire 2 hour window is the biggest number in aggregate that you can hope for Did I just make your head spin nope uh, not at all uh Mr. McMahon is announcing that the uh number 1 contender is uh still a hot topic and he's going to introduce several names before he names the number one contender and he's going to bring them down one at a time out first of course is mankind i think kane and the undertaker are going to be next and here vince is going to thank mankind for everything he's done in the wwf but he wonders if it's enough to become the number one contender they don't bring out kane say he's one of the stupidest men he's ever seen for agreeing to give steve austin a rematch uh, but gives Kane props for putting in a writing that he would set himself on fire if he didn't win the WWF title, the King of the Ring. Then he goes to the Undertaker and he calls the Undertaker evil for nearly taking mankind's life at the Hell in a Cell match and then setting his own brother on fire. Uh, but McMahon also knows that the Undertaker wants to regain the title more than life itself, and that impresses him. So he can't seem to decide, so he's going to make a triple threat match. And uh, the lights will go out as we go to commercial. So that's what this skit is about at the top of the hour, making your main event. We should mention that at this time on Nitro, uh, where this crossover hour here from hour one to hour two on Raw is to decide what the main event will be. You're sort of doing the same thing on Nitro. Uh, I know what you're thinking. Well, no, that was always going to be Hogan Goldberg. But at the very beginning of the show, Hogan came out and said, the only way he's getting a title shot with me tonight is if he can beat another one of my NWO brothers you haven't seen for a long time. He's coming back tonight, and if you get through him, then and only then can you have a title shot. And, of course, we know it's a returning Scott Hall, and at the top of the hour, that's what we're going to see. Scott Hall and Goldberg. Bruce and I watched that match back for the first time in a long time. Not a good match with Scott Hall and Goldberg, but... When it came to eyeballs, man, the crowd was into it. They were all about it. And Goldberg was ratings. Makes a lot of sense to have Goldberg wrestle twice and have it be in the crossover time, right? Well, it did. And I think a lot of people assumed, and we knew that going in, a lot of people assumed that once we announced, you know, Hogan Goldberg, and then we added a stipulation, we expected most people to go, okay, well, this is their way out. Right. They're not really going to deliver this this is this is their storyline you know way out of this and then when goldberg won it was like holy crap this is really going to happen and and actually raise the enthusiasm even more by seemingly taking away from them what we knew they wanted and it it worked pretty effectively obviously is there a little bit a little bit of psychology going on there you know, we talked earlier about how, gosh, everything on here feels like warmed up WCW. Of course, the undertaker was a part of WCW as me and Mark Callis. Uh, mankind was a part of WCW as cactus Jack. 
Is there anybody we've seen on this show so far in hindsight that you say, God, I wish we could have done something with him. No, that, that idea has never crossed my mind. I, I know that people think that it has and assume that it has whatever. They don't believe me when I say that it hasn't, but I, that's that, that way of thinking that, that thought process was, it, it still is alien to me. You, you got what you've got, you know, if you get an opportunity to work, you know, I, I didn't work at WCW when uh, Mark, mean Mark Callis was a character. There. Right. It's just it's way before my time. I never looked at him as a former WC. It still don't look at him as a former WCW guy. Uh, he made his name as Undertaker in WWE. That's how I recognize him. And I, until somebody points it out, like you just did, I actually forget about it. But I've never ever looked at anybody and said, "Oh, I just wish I could have got that guy." I wish I, while I had him, I could have used him differently. I just don't think that way. Not that maybe I shouldn't, <laughs> but I I just don't. How about this cast of characters? Just when you look at the look, you know, you got mankind in sweatpants and a button-up shirt and a tie and a mask and crazy hair and uh, stains all over the shirt and tattered sleeves and. I don't even know how you would describe Kane, uh, seven foot skin tight, red flame body suit and a fruit roll up mask. And then the yeah, undertaker roll up mask. I've never heard it described like that before. That's funny. Quite the different look though. I mean, it feels like the WWF spent a lot of time on, you know, the look and, and the characters. And we've heard a lot, you know, from creative services and the art department and you know, things like that. When it came time for WCW to sort of do some brainstorming on their own, it feels like the things we remember are things like Glacier and Mortis. Is there something sort of creative that's sort of off the beaten path that you look back at WCW and say, that was our undertaker. That was our cane. That was our mankind. No, no. And, and again, not that there wouldn't have been similarities in some cases, but you know, the, the truth, and it's not something I'm necessarily proud of, the truth is that WCW didn't spend uh, as much time thinking about developing or investing in the look of characters as WWF did. It was secondary. You know, uh, for me at the time, my primary focus wasn't as much the look of the character as the feel and the presentation of the character as a relatable person. Now, obviously, Mortis and, and Glacier were, were, were the exception, and we've already discussed ad nauseum why. Don't need to go into it again here. But beyond those, those characters, um, a lot of the characters in, in WCW were developed by the talent themselves. Right. You know, they, came, they came with it you know, or, or developed it while they were there. It wasn't as high of a priority to WCW um, in, in terms of the commercial look and the ability to monetize that look in licensing and merchandising as it was to Vince McMahon. It, clearly it's worked for him over the years. One of the things I wanted to ask about was, um, the Vince McMahon line. Well, I guess we should back up. Did you ever sit down and watch the movie beyond the mat? It's probably no. been a long time. You never saw it at all. No, I saw clips of it, but I never sat and watched the whole thing. We should do that one day. Uh, the, in the movie, they're visiting with Vince McMahon in his office and he's excited to do the on-camera interview and he's trying to explain, you know, professional wrestling and some of the characters and the development and the storylines and things like that. 
and he's got a water bottle out and he says, we make movies and has this big, like shit eating grin smirk. And then takes a big swig of water. And it's been something wrestling fans sort of look back upon as a way to explain why some of the things that are happening creatively are happening because he views wrestling maybe through a different lens than you or I do where you said, well, a lot of the difference is they spent more time on the characters. It just wasn't priority with us. And a lot of those guys came with their own. Is that really the most fundamental difference between Vince McMahon and every other wrestling promotion ever? Because he does spend more time on, you know, the character development and the storylines and he's willing to sort of look at wrestling, not through this is legitimate athletic competition. And instead, Hey, this guy's dead and he can summon lightning. And he set his brother on fire. Like that doesn't happen in any other wrestling promotion. No, it, it, it was a unique lens and has been historically. And it's, it's been, I think if you look back at the history uh, from WWF to WWE to this day and generally now there was, you know, the attitude era, you know, there was a shift. And when I say characters and that we didn't spend enough time or we didn't spend as much time or prioritize characters, I want to be clear. We did, but my view of characters in the mid-90s, late-90s, was much different than the WWF's version of characters. My idea of a great character was someone who was believable, relatable, and, and not so animated that it made what we were watching in WCW feel like you were watching I don't want to say sci-fi, but um, there was an animation in WW, an animated type of character in WWF that I didn't find relatable to our particular audience. This is horrible fucking boxing here. Just yeah, this is like tough man contest stuff. This is horrible. Uh, so let's keep talking about characters. But I think if you look at the history of WWE or F. Over the years, in totality, that view of characters is actually the correct one, or the WWE view of characters is the correct one, because they're more merchandisable. They relate more overall to kids. They're, they have a longer sustainability in some cases. Uh, so it's just a difference of, you know, you, see, you know, a character, it's characteristics. What are the characteristics? It's not always just the look. You know, you could you could put somebody the coolest gimmick you anybody ever has ever created, but if there's not something unique about that character in terms of the way they perform or they relate to the audience, then it's just a cool gimmick. So there's a fine line between how you de- describe or define a character and a look, and you know WWF has always done a good job with with both. You know, they Undertaker has very unique characteristics. Kane had very similar characteristics to the Undertaker, but a very unique look. Um, but just because you put a good gimmick on someone, a la Glacier, doesn't necessarily mean they're going to get over. What we're watching right now, Darren Drozdoff in there doing a brawl for all with Road Warrior Hawk. Hawk had a reputation for being a legit badass and this is obviously a much different Hawk than we've seen in years past. He's had some real trials and tribulations with substance abuse and 
as a result, he looks a little different. His haircut's a lot different. They're trying to give him a new coat of paint here. Uh, but the road warriors being the monster team, they were, you know, maybe 10 years prior. It's a little different here. Well, it's different. And again, 16, I know everybody's going to hear me say this. I know we already said that 16 ounce gloves. Hey, if you haven't done it, then listen closely going out there and, and for two or three minutes in a round, I don't know how long these rounds are. One minute, uh, one minute rounds, even one minute going out there and throwing a boatload of punches with 16 ounce gloves. If you're not in shape for that, let me tell you a quick story. When I was in, when I was in junior high school, I was, I was on the wrestling team and I was in pretty good shape. But I first, I, I ran cross country. I was on a cross country team to get in shape for wrestling. Then I wrestled on the wrestling team. So I was by the end of wrestling season, I, I was in pretty good shape between running cross country for a couple months and then wrestling for a couple months. When wrestling season was over, I didn't, you know, I was like, okay, now what do I do? I'm too small to play basketball uh, and nobody cares. Like, I don't like baseball. So what do I do? And there was a girl by the name of Sherry Blasco. She was really hot. She was a cheerleader. I'm 14 or 15 at the time. So careful, but she was, yeah, she was, a, she was really cute. She was a cheerleader. I had the biggest crush on Sherry Blasco and there was an intramural swimming competition. Now, I'd always, as a kid, you know, went to the lake, swam a lot, you know, all summer long, swam almost all my life. So I thought, this is how I'm going to impress Sherry Blasco because I'm going to, because I've got to be in better shape than almost anybody that swims in this competition, you know, because I ran cross country for a couple of months and I wrestled. I'm in great shape. So I entered this intramural swimming competition because I thought I'm a pretty decent swimmer. So I, boom, gun goes off. And it's, we were supposed to do like, I don't know, six laps back and forth across the pool or whatever. And she was my timekeeper. She was the one with the stopwatch in my lane. So I was like, oh, this is going to be great. She's going to think I'm the coolest thing ever. I'm going to get a date with Sherry Blasco. Oh, wow. I fucking almost drowned. <laughs> I almost drowned. Like halfway through the intramural swimming competition, I'm thinking, oh, my God, they're going to have to throw me a fucking life preserver. and She's going to see me drowned because I, I wasn't used to swimming competitively just because I, I ran cross country. And because I was a good or I was in good shape for, as a wrestler didn't mean I was in good shape as a swimmer. Different muscles, different cardio. Everything's different. And the same is true with here. Now, you look at a guy like Road Warrior Hawk in a street fight, in a bar fight, when most fights end in two or three punches, usually who, who gets the best one in first wins. Right. Uh, or you've got your hands and you can grab people and, you know, ram their heads for something or whatever you need to do to win. Yeah. Hawk was a badass. Now you put 16 ounce gloves on him and he can't use his hands and he's throwing a bunch of punches. He's not in shape for it's a whole different world. And until you've done it, you just don't realize it. By the way, Sherry Blaskow went out with me anyway, probably because she felt sorry for me. Well, we don't have Blue Chew as a sponsor this week, so let's move on. Uh, Mark Merrow and Jacqueline are heading to the ring, and uh, JR is saying that Jackie's going to break her silence here tonight. And of course, there's going to be a huge Sable chant. Jacqueline is about to take full responsibility for Merrow's loss last week in Brawl for All against Steve Blackman. Uh, and she's going to say it's because we went 12 rounds the night before, because it was our two month anniversary. And Jackie says that Sable couldn't possibly satisfy all of Mark Merrow's sexual needs. Um, yeah, 
Enough of that talk. <laughs> Enough of that. <laughs> yeah, so Sable's going to come out in a minute. And, uh, I mean, really process. <laughs> I, you know, I'm kind of hoping we can just get through this. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, she is a, she's in excellent condition. Let's just leave it at that. <laughs> Very attractive woman. You're saying Jacqueline or Sable or both? Well, here we're looking at Jacqueline. No, no, no doubt. And, uh, of course she's fresh off a win over disco Inferno. (laughs) 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 I just, Uh, everything about this show. Now that I'm looking at it through this, and I guess I never really thought about it, but well, it's the former Johnny B bad. And this is the girl who beat, uh, disco Inferno. It's, it's incredible how many former WCW talents are making up this raw is war show. It's amazing how the narrative of WCW only got over by taking WWF stars, isn't it? Well, here's the thing, you know, the, the narrative I was talking about earlier with Vader is WWF made stars out of people. WCW couldn't. And it's like, well, Mark Merrow and Vader would disagree. Yep, they would. Johnny B. Bad, of course, is famously the character that Vince McMahon really wanted. And of course he learns that, uh, well, that's a character and we don't own that. He doesn't either. So we can't do that. Did you think of all the characters that WCW had? The one that Vince would be most enamored with is Johnny fucking B. Bad. You know, I, I didn't think of it that way. I like Johnny. We've talked about this before. I consider myself to be a friend of his. You know, we'd go over to his house and read his house and watch, you know, whenever Mike Tyson would fight, we'd go over to his house and have dinner and watch a fight. So I, you know, I, I was disappointed when Johnny left. You know, when I, I, we had the conversation in an airport, you know, when he told me he was leaving and you know, if he would have said, look, I'm, I, I, I got to leave because he's paying more mo- paying me more money. I would have said, you know, Johnny, you got to do what you got to do. And God bless you. And, and when you need to come back, come on back. But what Johnny said to me is it, it kind of stung me a little bit because we we're friends. And, you know, he basically said, and I'm, I'm you know, paraphrasing this a little bit here, but it was like, uh, you know, Vince McMahon says he can make me a star and I believe him. And I don't think you can. It was like, whoa, OK, that stung, but go with it. Um, I was a little surprised because I, as much as I liked Johnny and I, I believed he had potential, I just never saw him as that. I never saw him as an undertaker or a stone cold Steve Austin, or, and obviously, you know, that, that was later on, but I never saw him as that character or that level of a character. I should say Vince didn't either. Well, he did when he hired him. Well, or he wouldn't have hired him. Well, he said he would. I mean, here's the thing too. I'm not disparaging Mark Merrow. I just think the Johnny B. Bad character. It's like, I mean, that thing has a ceiling. Mark Merrow as a, a real life, you know, he has the right mentality. If you've seen any of his stuff that he's done, you know, with, uh, kids in school and things like that. I mean, he's got the positive mental outlook, keeps himself in great shape. He's uh, a former golden gloves boxer. I mean, He's a talent. That's no, right. he's a talent, but even look at him here. I know he's not Johnny B. Bad here, technically. Right. 
He's got a different handle. He's got a different name, character name. He's dressed differently. But is he acting any differently, really? I mean, a little bit. Not much. Very little difference, I think, between the Johnny B. Bad character. I'm talking about the, the, the character the characteristics. How does he, how does he walk into the ring? How does he, what does he do once he gets into the ring? Come on, what are Mary. his facial expressions? You had, not Johnny, that much different. you had Johnny be bad coated in glitter, wearing eyeliner and eyeshadow and lipstick. Dude, what did I just fucking say? I just said, forget about what he looked like in the Johnny be bad character. I'm talking about his characteristics, his facial expressions in the ring. It was two different things, but he pranced to the ring and shot glitter at everybody. I mean, it's a totally different thing. Are you, uh, boy? Right this, now, right now, looking at him, is he acting that much different? Okay. Forget about what he looks like. Is he acting? Is his performance that much different? I feel like you did that he was, on cue right there because you're fucking on the money. I was wrong. Can you believe I said that on the show? All right, but next up we've got Val. Venus. No, I just think you're trying to shut me up because you're sick of hearing me talk. That's what I think. No, no. no? When you start oh. talking about that goddamn meeting in July of 98, where they're booking again, then I'll cut you off. I feel like we've heard that. I one. promise. I'm never going to bring that up. I'm so <laughs> sick of hearing. I am so sick of hearing myself say it. That if you ask me about it, I'll refuse to comment. So how about this? Dustin Runnels, the former he used to be at WCW <laughs> warmed up WCW, baby. Uh, what do you think of the Val Venus character and the video Tron for it? I found it entertaining. I really did. I mean, it was definitely pushing the envelope. I mean, I'm not saying it was one of the greatest things they ever did, but it was certainly one of the farthest they'd ever pushed the envelope at that time. I mean, come on. <laughs> this is. And by the way, I used to have fun hanging out with Val. I haven't talked to him in two decades, but he was a cool guy. Worked with him a little bit, WWE. So the former gold dust has now decided that he's going to, uh, turn his, uh, life around and turn himself over to the, turn his heart over to the Lord. And he's been born again. And, uh, he's going to carry picket signs around that he's praying for you and things like that. Doing a totally different character. So of course they're going to put him against the pseudo porn star here. Meltzer was always, uh, very critical of the goal of gold dust work and felt like, you know, he had his best matches as Dustin Rhodes and felt like it really went downhill quickly for him here in the WWF. But a couple of months ago, uh, when he uh, wrestled his brother for AEW, it was the, a five-star match for the first time for either one of those guys. And even if you weren't like even Jim Cornette, who's been critical of everything that AEW has done. Couldn't say enough nice things about the match between Cody and Dustin. Have you had a chance to see that one yet? It was a bloodbath. It was a bloodbath, which I didn't really dig, but I love the story. I mean, the story is to me, it's all story. It's, you know, the rest of it is the, the rest of it is, is dressing and it's important. I don't mean to minimize it. I don't mean to suggest that it's never important or not important usually, but man, you give me a good story that I believe and I, I look past everything else and it, yeah, I can't say enough great things about it. Wow. There you go. Go check it out. So this, uh, this match here, probably not going to get lots of critical acclaim from 
the Meltzers of the world, but they're trying to tell a story here. What do you think of, uh, Dustin's look here? feels like he's ready to do a King of the road match on the back of a flatbed pickup. I think those boots make his butt look big, but uh, whatever. Uh, oh my gosh. That's <laughs> I don't know. I just had to come up with something. Uh, you know, the knee pads, I guess makes sense. Technically speaking, but eh. I guess we should mention now, nobody, no, nobody ever looks good. You know, first of all, take this note. If you're a young wrestler, you know, if you're a young performer, if you're out on the indie scene, if you're thinking about going out on the indie scene, do not wear a white shirt on television ever, ever, ever. Nobody looks good. Okay. Maybe the rock, but other than that, nobody looks good in a white t-shirt. Don't ever do it. Especially don't tuck it in. Oh God. Not that if you're going to wear no, 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 no. You mean you just can't because it, then you're going to show your flaws. Not because it's not in fashion because you know, you got a little bit of extra weight you're going to carry. Guess what's the first thing somebody, your eyes going to go to. Oh my God. He's got love handles. If you're going to wear a white t-shirt, try to make it a V-neck and don't tuck the damn thing in because you're exposing your flaws. So this is the second time we've, we've seen a, a cutaway shot of edge in the crowd once on the concourse. And, and the second I thought that time. was dog, the bounty hunter, man, he wanted to be a wrestler back then. Oh my God. Listen to you. Um, <laughs> the skit we saw at the beginning of this is going to pay. Go off ahead. Lap. It was funny. Go ahead. It was because I wanted to just jump right into, you think, you know me, but I'm dog, the bounty hunter. You think, you know me, uh, Yamaguchi-san, who is the manager of Kai and Tai, had his lovely wife at ringside very recently, and that was the recap we saw to start this match where Val approached a lady in the front row and did all of his gyrating, and uh, she had a response. And there's going to be a, a receipt for that. I don't think it's going to happen on this particular show, but eventually, I'm sure you heard about this, um, there they are. Kai and Tai getting their receipt. Here comes Yamaguchi son and his lovely wife. They're going to, uh, they're going to get revenge on Val. And the only way that Yamaguchi son really will find satisfactory. And they're going to take out a samurai sword. They're going to tie up Val. They're going to pull his trunks down. They're going to pull his gimmick out. And they're going to choppy choppy his PP. You're kidding me. Yep. I've never heard of this before. Yeah. They cut Val. This Venus. is new to me. The guys in the this ring right crazy. now is uh, Funaki, uh, Men's Tail, and Dick to go. <laughs> oh, God. I missed the 90s. You could get away with anything. Crazy. Yeah. Do you ever think about bringing uh, Dick to go over to WCW? No, 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 I never did. Could have really but lit this it up. This is hilarious. I, I've never seen this before. I've never read about this before. I don't remember about hearing about it when it happened. This is crazy. By the way, where's Dustin? <laughs> you love it. Oh, I do love it. I'm sorry. It's a guilty pleasure at the moment, but yeah, I'm digging it. I love that this got the biggest reaction of anything on the whole show for you. Well, it's just so whack. I mean, I just, 
It's crazy. So his wife didn't get to whack his junk off. <laughs> I mean, cut it off. Jeez. Yeah. There's, there's all kinds of ways to go south with this thing. There is. All right. So next up is the skit that everybody, the thing everybody remembers most about this show. Uh, we're finally going to see Degeneration X. They're the hot act here on the show. And here we go. It's the Rock's music. Speaking of the Rock with the white t shirt, oh, that doesn't look like the Rock. That doesn't look like Mark Kent. That's not Owen Hart. That's definitely not D Lo. And that's not the Godfather. What's, I don't understand what's going on. Oh, I see. It's DX doing a parody. Of the nation of domination. It almost feels like I've seen this before. Maybe when the NWO did a spoof of the horseman last year. Hmm. See, that's a, that's a great, great connection. A way to connect those dots. Parodies are always fun though. Yeah. They're doing a good job with them here. Who's that? Uh, that is Jason sensation. He does, uh, a, a tremendous. Owen Hart impression. And that is, uh, Sean Waltman, regrettably in blackface. He's come out and said that he knew that was not the right thing to do. He didn't want to do it. He asked permission, uh, from some of the other, uh, African-American fellows in the locker room. They gave their blessing, but he still feels like he put them in a bad spot and should have just said, no, I'm not doing it, but he did it. And here's, uh, Billy Gunn dressed up as the Godfather. And instead of the rock, Triple H is going to call himself the croc. <laughs> He's doing a pretty good job here. Play a little audio for people to listen to at home here. You know, the croc just came from the bathroom. The croc. And you should have smelled what the rock was cooking. <laughs> oh, look at Bilo. Nation ain't gonna like this. I ain't faking. You should have smelled what the rock was baking. The rock was baking. Brother was baking. <laughs> look at. What do you think of uh, Road Dog's head bob here in the corner? I mean, I look. They're all doing a great job. I mean, parodies are not always easy to do. It's like you know, it's just like comedy. You know, anybody can go up and tell a joke in front of a crowd, but not everybody is a good comedian. Right. Yeah. Everybody can, you know, parody somebody, but doesn't necessarily mean it's entertaining to watch. These guys are really doing a great job. It's all the little details. Every little detail is what makes it, you know, work. And damn, they're all doing a great job. The other uh, sort of rib is, I guess, way back in the day, Someone decided to rib Mark Henry with his food and he had, uh, I think like a sandwich and a styrofoam box or something. And people kept moving it. And then eventually he got a promo that nobody better mess with my food. And you know how that goes. So someone took a shit in a sandwich and then everyone waited around to see what would happen. And allegedly, according to the rumor and innuendo, he ate it. And no, no, I didn't need to know that. There was information that we didn't need to share on this show. My God, I'm not going to be able to shake that image out of my head for the rest of the month. So oh. in a minute, 
when Mia's Ark or Ms. Ark, Carney for the word Mark, uh, speaks when Waltman speaks, he's going to mention that he eats shit. And I think as legend goes only then did Mark Henry realize somebody fucked with my food. No more. I'm calling a foul on that. No more. Did you just, did you just blow your goddamn dog whistle at us? I just blew my whistle. No more. I'm throwing a flag on that. I don't want to hear any more about that story. Let's see what you think of, uh, Jason sensations. Owen Hart impression. Look how big my damn nose is. (laughs) What the hell am I? An art bark. (laughs) What does the brother look like? An art bark. Look at Milo. <laughs> hey, 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 Rock! Me is Ark Henry. I don't know what you're cooking. Smells like sh- Oh my! But I think I'll eat some anyway. <laughs> so there you go. There's your uh, there's your backstage news you needed in wrestling, right, Eric? Damn, you know the. I don't know if people believe me or not when I say some of this stuff I just didn't pay attention to, but this is honestly first time I've seen it, heard about it. It's a, it's like it just happened now, like it's live right now. That's how this feels to me. It's hilarious, but holy crap. That whole, that whole Mark Henry story was more than I was prepared for this morning. I, I need you to, uh, to do me a favor. When you're running up and down the roads for SmackDown, can you always make your own plate? Trust me. If it's a, <laughs> if it, if it, it, I, I'm drinking my meals out of a bottle I buy in the store. Whatever it is, juice, protein shake, you name it. It'll come off a shelf. So earlier today, uh, very early in the show, we saw Ken Shamrock get attacked by Viscera. Huge man. And I'll say he is huge. Any, uh, any, have any, uh, easy for me to say, ever have any conversations with, uh, Viscera or Mabel about coming over? I know he was supposed to be the third man in the NWO, but when that didn't work out, did you try anything else? No, I, I've never had a conversation with Viscera or Mabel, despite what Meltzer reported and then claimed he didn't report. And then use Sean Waltman to justify why he reported it and then claimed he never reported it, but whatever. <laughs> no, the answer is no. Something fun that they're mentioning here on commentary. JR is telling us no more ad breaks tonight, boys and girls stay tuned. We're not going to leave. Uh, so they went heavy on the ads in the first hour, which you probably wondered, why are we 43 minutes in and it's already the crossover. It's because they front loaded the commercials. Tell everybody the business strategy behind doing something like that. Well, you know, you have your lowest audience, uh, generally in the beginning of the show. Um, everybody, the audience generally, at least back then, I'm not sure. I haven't looked at a lot of the research, uh, as of late, I'll be diving into a lot of that over the next few weeks. But back in the nineties, when I was producing nitro, we knew that our audience generally would build throughout the hour or the two hour period of time. And if you wanted to hold an audience and have absolutely the biggest number you could possibly have uh, at the end of the the second hour, you would try to basically burn as many of your ads as you possibly could when you had 
the lowest audience of the evening. So you wouldn't lose as many people later on. As prime time gets later in the evening, generally the shows get better. And um, you would try to position yourself to hold on to as much of the audience as you could by burning through as many of the advertisements as you could through the earlier part of the evening when you had a less dense audience. Boy, Mabel, was, or Viscera was big. Yikes. Oh, no, he's Mabel here. Yeah, I mean, he's going to he's gonna go through a few different versions of himself, but Mabel's returned here, and he's going to join the Undertaker and uh, become part of his Ministry of Darkness. But that's around the same time that other folks will be recruited, like Midian and Bradshaw and some other guys that they don't really have anything to do. They'll just make them a uh, part of this big badass demonic group from the undertaker. That's an interesting finish in a big man. Yeah. But you know what? It gets over the ankle lock, right? Well, I mean, no, I'm, when I say interesting, I mean, a good finish, you know, I mean, how else are you going to, how else could you be, be you know, believably beat a guy as big as this um in a very visual way and i think this is a great way to do it it's a smart finish especially for kem shanrock at the time given his you know mma kind of crossover appeal so this is a returning mabel and on his return he destroys shamrock but later in the same show uh he's he taps out and uh shamrock even though he's won the match is not releasing the hold and obviously Hebner is getting very frustrated with that. You, I mean, some people would argue that this is him turning heel, but when somehow when Shamrock does it, that's not the case. Some more referees. Let's see what's going to happen here. I think, yeah, Air Sergeant Slaughter, he's the commissioner at the time. He's the WWF's JJ Dillon. And he is ordering Ken Shamrock to release the hold. And of course, all the refs scatter. <laughs> he's back to punching Mabel. We're not done. I mean, they framed him to be a, a, a badass and a formidable opponent for the world title, a real threat, but he doesn't get that opportunity. There you go. So what's left is our uh, main event. It's the undertaker. It's uh, mankind. It's Kane. It's a three-way. The winner of that match will be the number one contender. And this is going to be head to head or about to see with um bill goldberg and hulk hogan you haven't watched that show the july 6 nitro since last year when you and i revisited it so i know you're going to be doing this from memory but it's no wonder you guys won the ratings this night is it no i mean given you know the momentum that bill i mean even though at this point in 1998 you know WWE was clearly, clearly closing the gap and in some cases, you know, beating us had definitely uh, transitioned from the family friendly WWF era to the attitude era. You know, we're seeing things like Vince McMahon, you know, flipping people off and, you know, the Stone Cold Steve Austin character and drinking beer and, you know, all of the innuendo, the sexual innuendo and, you know, mature type of content that was a big transition you know and it started in in november of 1997 when vince mcmahon infamously came out infamously came out and said you know we're changing gears 
you know, I'll paraphrase the whole thing here. I don't remember exactly what he said, but he made it clear to the audience that there was going to be a transition. Shortly after that, we saw Mike Tyson. We saw the, you know, the the uh, beginning of the Mr. McMahon character, the Stone Cold Steve Austin feud, and uh, DX, and they just kept pouring, you know, Val Venus. We just got to look at that. All of those things, that, you know, this is, what are we, we're in July of 1998 right now. In November of 1997, Vince McMahon told you it was going to happen. We are now oh, eight months into that, nine months into that. And just look how different, this show is and the way it's being presented in in July of 1998 than the product was in early November of 1997, a mere nine months earlier. Massive transition, but massive growth in audience, massive growth in success, tremendous amount of momentum as a result. Stone Cold Steve Austin wants a ringside seat here for this uh, number one contender match. He's going to saddle up and put on headsets right next to Vince McMahon. How about that? Sorry, I'm just, again, I've never seen this before. So it's very interesting for me to see how they're selling it and Vince's reaction. And they're, and see, this is so real to me. I mean, just this, this is not Vince McMahon pretending he's a wrestling promoter who's now, you know, whose ego is getting the better of him. This is Vince McMahon with the volume turned up. I just, I love this. This is, I mean, I, I, I don't know. I have no idea. Obviously I've never talked to either one of them about it, but I'm guessing there was very little rehearsal. You know, they knew what they were going to do. They probably talked about, this is what we're going to do, but I'm pretty sure the verbiage was not discussed. And if it was, it was barely touched. They just knew what they were going to do. And it's, it's magic to me. Mankind is now in the ring. Of course, Paul Bear is already there waiting for, for his guys, Mankind and Kane, to make their way down. Tony Chimmel going to do the ring announcing. Referee Tim White. Any good memories about uh, your time in the WWF with Chimmel or, or Tim White or Paul Bear or any of those guys? Yeah, you know, I never met Paul Bear. Um, Chimmel, I, I you know, probably crossed paths with a little bit. Very social guy, you know, personable guy. Tim White, I spent a fair amount of time with. What a, what a, I'm only hesitating because, you know, referring to someone as a sweet man can sometimes, you know, people don't know what do you mean by that, but what a genuinely down-to-earth sweet guy. He, you know, when I first got to WWE, he was probably one of the ones at first that was the most uh, outwardly, welcoming to me i mean there were, everybody was you know kind of professionally welcoming and did all the right things said all the right things but then there are certain people that just make you feel like they're actually glad you're there and tim white in his own way did that and you know i immediately you know huh with him not not after the shows or anything like that we didn't drink beers together or anything but you know when there was free time backstage you know when i had just you know hours between shots or something and didn't have anything to do but I was backstage. I would sit and talk to to Tim, and he would tell me stories about traveling with Andre, and you know, just tell me stories about his time. And it just, yeah, you know, I, I can't wait to uh, can't wait to cross paths with him again. You know, he, he used to tell me about the bar he owned all the time, and I swore I was always going to go up and visit him. 
<clears throat> at some point. And now maybe I'll be able to do that because I'll be more or less in his backyard. So we're about to get this uh, three-way kicked off here. And of course, um, the two people most interested in this besides the competitors are Austin who wants the belt, uh, more than, uh, anyone else in the company and McMahon who wants the belt off of Austin more than anyone else in the company. So, uh, the undertone of this match, as has been the case since January is Steve Austin versus Mr. McMahon. Great storytelling and long-term storytelling. And let's face it, it can only be, it can only be long-term storytelling if it's great. <laughs> Nobody's going to stick with a bad story long-term, but this was a great one. So Austin and McMahon are sort of taking over the show on commentary, going back and forth and everybody's waiting with bated breath on the undertaker. And Austin has his eyes locked on McMahon, but there's no undertaker. Hmm. The audience is wondering, where is he? What's going to happen next? What's gone wrong? Is somebody somehow sabotaged the undertaker? Is somebody had done something backstage to prevent this match from happening? Who's behind it? Is it Steve Austin? So the ring is, is bathed in, in the undertaker or Kane's red light now. And McMahon is going to announce to the crowd that since the undertaker is too chicken shit to appear, he's going to change the match to a no holds barred false count anywhere match between can Kane and mankind. Interesting, interesting development. And the winner is going to be your number one contender. Little bit like from a psychology perspective, and I'm not suggesting that they, you know, nobody was copying anybody here, but from a psychology perspective, not unlike what we did with Scott Hall um, and Goldberg throwing him in there and Hogan saying, if you can get through him, you can get to me. A little bit of a swerve tossed into this thing to help set up what will ultimately be a great finish. I'm sure. I think you're going to be, uh, happy with this match. What do you think about the uh, red lighting effect for Kane here? Uh, I don't like it. Just, just don't like it. You know, my first question is why, why does that, why does he get something that, that if all things are equal and this is a, uh, a competition between these guys, why, why does that happen? You know, if, if, if you, if you're supposed to believe it happened because of some supernatural effect, uh, okay, I, I'll, I'll guess that works for some people. If, if that's not your belief, then why does he get a special kind of intro that McFoley or Cactus Jack doesn't get or mankind? I get so confused, but why? Sometimes just asking the question why and being able to answer it can make a story so much better. So mankind here is going to uh, take a seat here and he's going to say, I've given enough and I'm not going to give you any more. I'm not going to fight my friend Kane and Vince is going to call for the bell anyway. There it is. Who gives a shit? Do it. Do what I said. Damn it. I'm the boss. Do it. Let's see how Kane responds. 
I like that you're into this, you know, I kind of expected you to just be dismissive of this whole thing, but you're kind of into this main event angle. Well, depending on how it turns out, I'm into it because I think it's been set up really well. The stakes are there. It's a long-term story, obviously at the center of it, even though your, your, your participants in the ring are the focus at the, at this point, your B story right here, uh, is still Steve Austin, Vince McMahon, which has been the long-term arc that's been, you know, that's led up to this. So for me, from a creative kind of making sure the pieces all fit together and everything works well together, this is, you know, this is about as good as it gets from a storytelling point of view. Let's see what's happening here. Kane's coming out. He's picking up a chair. This is ugly. I bet you hate the lighting here, don't you? Well, because you can't see shit. But here's what I like. So far, this is all. How long have we gone here? Six minutes? Oh, my God. Nice shot. Great camera work. Looks like he just killed um, mankind. But I'm sure he didn't touch him. But it looked like he killed him. Uh, I think everybody so, assumed, I mean, the plan was that the visual is, oh, he's going to hit Austin with the chair, but he turns around and hits his best friend, mankind, right in the you face. You're, you're following this story closer than I am, but yeah, excellent. And what I was about to say is, you know, story, anticipation, reality, surprise, and action. Those are the five elements that I just firmly believe in. So far, this this story, this this match has all of the above with the emphasis on his anticipation. Right now, the audience watching, including me, is like, what the hell is going to happen next? You can't predict it. You don't know. Everything about everything that we've seen so far since this match was announced has been a surprise. Kane's going and, for the, the cover here. Let's see what happens. He's got him pinned, and Mankind has lost. The lights come up, and it looks like Kane is now the number one contender. He's won the match. Oh my God. Whoa! It was the undertaker. See, I love this kind of stuff. And off the air we go. That is awesome. What, what, what? Did, oh, that was awesome. <laughs> I like that. You love it, man. No, I, I, I'm not, you know, I'm not being patronizing because of, you know, the obvious situation, but break it down from a storytelling point of view. I, I read through it quickly. Did this angle have story? Did this match have a story built into it? Absolutely, it did. We were seven months into this story, or six months into the story now, between Austin and Mr. McMahon. This match served to advance that story, which served to get Austin over. It's perfect. So it had great story. This whole thing was about anticipation. What happened to The Undertaker? Where did he go? Vince McMahon, if I could do it anyway, you know? This whole thing was anticipation. And then a huge, and it was great action. Didn't need a whole lot of action because the story and the anticipation was so strong. But the surprise at the end was outstanding. And the reality that this whole thing needed was this, the, the reality that existed in the story between McMahon and Austin. It just, it hit all five of the elements in such a unique and creative way that I thought it was fantastic. Of course, we know when it all comes down, uh, you guys win the ratings night. You trump Raw. Nitro got a 4.93 that night. Raw got a 4.0. Uh, what we just saw with The Undertaker taking off Kane's mask to reveal that he, in fact, was the number one contender 
against Steve Austin. We know they're on a collision course now for SummerSlam. It was head to head with Hulk Hogan and Goldberg and Hulk Hogan and Goldberg is the first quarter hour in the history of pro wrestling on cable to reach 5 million homes. It drew 5,054,000 homes. Meltzer would call that in excess of 7 million total viewers. They got a 6.9 rating for that match in particular an 11.8 share and it broke the all time record. So it's a banner night for WCW, but not a terrible finish on the other side. I mean, especially based on your reaction, you really dug the finish of this one. No, and actually this, this, what we just watched was really building for the future. So yeah, they might've lost by technically by, you know, less than a point. You know, and when you're head to head and you're competing and you want bragging rights and the, the buzz you're trying to create, you know, within the peripheral wrestling community, uh, you know, you're focusing on that. Sure. A win is a win is a win. And you're going to be proud of that win. But this and not saying that WCW didn't, because clearly Goldberg was on fire and we were building for the future or attempting to with him, too. But you can't undervalue, you know, the the long term success that this particular story as it played out here, whether it won or lost had, it was, it was really well done. It was well done. And we hope that you guys appreciated a, uh, a little bit of a different version of 83 weeks. We took a look at a show that nitro beat Monday night raw from June 6th, 1998. Looking forward to next week. We're going to be coming at you with great American bash 1999, the 20 year anniversary. In the meantime, we'd love to hear from you, have some follows so you can keep up with everything going on here on the show. Our Twitter account is at 83 weeks. He is at a Bischoff and I am at, Hey, Hey, it's Conrad and we are out of time. We'll see you next week right here on 83 weeks. Derek Bischoff. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round together. It's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra? I think I can get an extra five to ten. What if I give you 15 to 20? Can you pay me more? Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B L E A V on YouTube or wherever you listen.